Anyone else read like at night right before bed? Like I, I, you know, I read a lot in the day for my job, but then I, you know, try and read fun things at night. And it's typically like I'm so tired that I pick it up, I read three or four pages, and then the book hits me in the face and I put it down. So the next night, you know, I have to like reread a few paragraphs to remind myself where I am. I feel like that's how it is when I've been preaching through the book of Philippians four months now. We're only in chapter three. And, you know, it's, it's a letter that's meant to be read in one sitting. Don't worry, I'm not gonna do that right now. But like, I feel like I'm just gonna give us a little recap of where we are because the passage for tonight is sort of right in the middle of a thought that Paul uh, has had. So we're in the book of Philippians. If you're just joining us for the first time, it's, you're, we're just gonna jump right in. And basically what has been happening is Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell to the church in Philippi and he's writing to encourage this group of followers who loves him but is concerned like, hey, you're not doing well, you're in prison, and we're scared, and so he's like, hey, you guys, guess what? It's gonna be okay, um, but I do wanna give you some advice, and so in the, last, uh, in the last passage we looked at last week, Paul uh, reminded them that faith isn't just something that is, that is felt, like it's not something that you just get one day, and then it should be smooth sailing, from then on out. And so Paul actually gives us good news when he normalizes the fact that having faith is a gift and that their struggles and struggles are normal and that we shouldn't take how we feel as a litmus test for how we're doing with God. And so he kind of just lays that foundation, says just breathe, it's gonna be okay. Faith is a journey of ups and downs. And he confesses himself that he has not yet arrived at full maturity, at completeness in his own faith. And so what Paul's encouraging in the Philippians and in us is not to obsess about our feelings or circumstances as if your circumstances today dictate how much God loves you or how much you love God. That's, that's just not a one-to-one that we can get to. And so Paul focuses on the promises of Jesus and that he helps us to live by faith and hope and love. And so that's kind of the immediate context for this passage I'm about to read, which is Philippians 5, Philippians 3, there is no Philippians 5, quiz, quiz, just testing you, yes, there is no Philippians 5, Philippians 3, 15 through chapter 4, verse 3. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word here. Okay. So remember, we're just jumping in kind of mid-thought, and I'll break it down after this. So. so let us therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if anything, you have, and if any of you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. Brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite or their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory 
by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony with the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the case of the gospel, together with Clement, and also with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you open up this word to us? Help us to discern what it is your servant Paul's talking about and what it is you're saying to us in this moment, in this age. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so at first glance, at first listen, even that was like my 10th read this week, it just sounds like a jumble of like, what is he on about? And why would Chris pick like to go into chapter four like that? Remember, there were no chapter and verses in the original letters, the scrolls of the New Testament, right? So at first glance, it just feels like Paul's talking about like, living out your faith, and then he talks about being a citizen of of heaven, and then he mentions these two ladies and their argument that's going on, and it's like, how do we fit all of this together? And so what I'm gonna do is to set all this up is to just give us a little bit of literary context. Writers, right, like even, you're all writers, because if you've written a text message or an email, or if you're in school, you write things, right? Writers use different literary devices to drive home their point. And one of the things that we have as modern people with like word processors, with computers, is like we can throw italics on and make an emphasis, or we can bold print. In in a lot of documents, you can even throw a picture in, or you can throw a a live video into your document. And so we today kind of make our points, I I think it's kind of blunt force trauma to the reader sometimes, like, it, rather than making a good point, I can just make it bold and it stands out, okay? Now, people in the ancient world didn't have printers. They didn't have all that technology. And so they had other devices that they would use to help their reader figure out what it is that they're saying. And one of the ways that they would use, or one of the things they would use is a chiasm. And so uh, Stella's gonna put up a slide here. Uh, a chiasm comes from this word chi. You can see this looks like an X and it makes the hard sound, and um, the next slide will show you some words that you're familiar with, so Christos, which means Christ, that's the Greek word for Christ, Christ, Christos, that's where we get chi, and um, for those of you who are conflicted about whether or not we should use Xmas, that means Christmas, that's, so it's not a bad thing, Christmas, right, okay, so now you see that chi is this, right, and so a chiasm is a, is a way of writing something that has uh, a form to it in that shape. So we're gonna go to the next slide. And this is the passage that we're looking at. And you'll see that there are three parts to it. The first one on the top of the X is uh, chapter three, verses 15 through 19. And in this part of the passage, that's where we get the call to live out our faith in Jesus as a concept. That's the part where Jesus is, or where Paul is saying, um, you know, some people have fallen away, but I want you to follow my, my lead and walk in a straight line is literally what the, what the Greek phrase says. And so that first part is the call to live out faith in Jesus, like conceptually, 
right? Like, think about it. This is how you do it, okay? And then as we move into the chiasm, you'll have uh, the B part there, which is chapter three, verses 20 through 21, and this is the part that declares that we are citizens of heaven, we are agents of God in the world. And then as we move out of the chiasm to A prime, you see the A with the little dash there, that's chapter four, verses one through three, and that is another call to live out our faith, and this time, if you look at the top one, uh, the call to live out our faith in Jesus as a concept, and then the bottom one is the call to live out our faith in Jesus in real life, like on the earth. And the, here's the deal that ancient people would understand is that with the chiasm, it's the middle piece that's where the emphasis goes. And so if you imagine this as a sandwich, you've got A as a piece of bread, and A prime as a piece of bread, and I love bread, but bread isn't the main part of the sandwich, usually. It's the hot pastrami and the cheese and the pepperoncinis for me. I love a hot pastrami sandwich. So uh, the Dutch crunch, that's my bread of choice for that sandwich would be the A and the A prime and then you've got the meat in the middle, right? And so as a chiasm, that's where the emphasis is, is in that, that chapter three, verses 20 through 21 where Paul declares that we are citizens of heaven, agents of God. So that's where I'm gonna start the sermon is I'm gonna flesh that part out for us and then we're gonna go to the pieces of bread, okay? That, okay, so I know that for some of you, you're like, what is this nerd moment? Uh, you don't have to care about this, but I did want you to see that there's a method to the madness of why we're going through these passages. Okay, so, uh, thank you, Stella. Here's that middle of the sandwich. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You know, Jesus was resurrected from the grave into a new kind of body that was physical because he's eating fish and he's hugging people and Mary's clinging to him and then he can also like teleport and walk through walls. It's really cool. And so whatever this new kind of body is, that's kind of the the prototype or what we have to look forward to. And Paul is saying like that power that resurrected Jesus is, that's the kind of power that citizens of the kingdom of heaven also have access to that one day we're going to have bodies like that too. So it's very hopeful. And you have to appreciate, I think, that uh, our, our citizenship is in heaven according to this meat of the sandwich. Um, and I, I think it's important for us to appreciate that Paul is writing this passage to a church, to the church in Philippi, which is made up of two strands of rich tradition. Okay, so we just looked at a literary context, that's the chiasm. Now let's look at some historical context because it matters. This is why Paul uses this language. Okay, two strands of people make up this church in Philippi in general. The first strand were people who are ancestors of ancient Philippi, like hundreds of years before Paul goes there. And these people were in this little place in Macedonia and they decided that they, the Macedonians decided that they're gonna make a stronghold there and they're gonna store their nation's gold there. And so these people, uh, hundreds of years before Paul was there, uh, were 
part of this stronghold, they were very proud that they're part of this, and Philippi is named after Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And so there's just a rich, like literally wealthy rich, but also a rich history there of, uh, of civic pride. People from Philippi were like, yeah, we're named after Philip, and we're the guardians of the stronghold, and we're an important city in Macedonia. So that's one strand of people that made up the population of Philippi, were ancestors from, uh, from this, this ancient group. Okay, then the second strand of people uh, are Roman people, because in 42 BC, Mark Antony and Octavius teamed up in a civil war in Rome, and, and Octavius would become Emperor Caesar Augustus, who if you know like your Gospel of Luke and the, the birth story, um, this is Augustus Caesar when Jesus is born, right? And they won this huge battle there, and generally speaking, historians say, you know, that was pretty much the beginning of the Roman Empire, right there in Philippi, on those grounds right outside the city. And Octavius has now all of these Roman soldiers and all of these generals, and oftentimes when people would complete 20 to 25 years of service, depending on the time of the Roman Empire, the, the, the benefit was you get a plot of land and you become a colonist there, and, and so you homestead, and you're given freedom, from the army now and you're given a retirement to live on and you're given land, it was like pretty nice deal. And so rather than take all of these soldiers and generals back to already overpopulated Rome, he says, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna give you some homesteads right in Philippi. Uh, The same thing, by the way, uh, happened in Corinth. Corinth was a colony, a Roman colony um, in the first century. So so he, he puts all these uh, Roman soldiers, retired Roman soldiers there, people who bring the Latin language to a Greek-speaking place, who bring Roman gods and goddesses, um, and as it would develop later in the first century, they also brought the cult of the emperor, which maybe you've heard this before, but uh, starting with Augustus, who self-styled himself as a son of a god, they instituted the worship of the emperor. So that's pretty pretty interesting there. So that also was brought into Philippi. Um, and so that's the historical context to which Paul is now writing here, and that's why he uses this word citizenship, because the Philippian church was set up right in the heart of the Roman Empire where citizenship and loyalty to Caesar would definitely get you some side benefits, but it would also cost your total allegiance your taxes, and potentially your life, because the moment that Caesar wants to go to war, guess what? Every able-bodied person is going to, whether you want to or not, uh, to battle with him. In the end, your fate is the same as everyone else's. You're going to die. (laughs) Sorry, I mean, I mean, you are, but anyway, I got better news for you, but I'm just saying that like, the Roman Empire got you some side benefits, but then in the end, they're still going to die, okay? And so in this context, Paul reminds the church that our citizenship is not in Rome or in Philippi or in Bellingham or in the United States of America. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And it's based on the rule and authority and power of God. Now, one of the side benefits of being a Roman citizen is that if there was like, uh, you're in Philippi and like a group of Gauls or barbarians comes and attacks, you could theoretically like, well, you couldn't call, but (laughs) send a runner to Rome and say like, oh, this is going on, help. And Lord Savior Caesar, who is the Prince of Peace, he called himself, he was supposed to send an army to come help you and to come protect you. 
And what Paul is saying to these Philippian Christians who are living in turbulent times is that their eternal security, their destiny is locked up and secure in Christ. And that the same power that raised him from the dead is at work in your future and in my future. That our bodies, our very lives will be resurrected one day and in that day, cancer can't touch us and this bad knee I've been icing every day, getting old sucks, Um, this bad knee won't bother me, our addictions will be no more, our hearts will actually work right, like be rightly ordered so that we desire the things that God desires We're not tripped up by the things that trip us up now. We'll be truly alive in the new kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So Paul's giving us a promise in this passage and he's stating a fact. There is, according to Paul and according to Jesus and according to Peter, according to the New Testament, there is an inevitability that one day, as he writes in Philippians 2, that At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he, not Caesar, not Zeus, not Jupiter, not the president, not you, not me, that Jesus will be known as Lord, as God, and as Savior. And Paul is saying all this because he wants to encourage the church and us by reminding us that Jesus loves us, he's for us, and other, unlike other solutions put forward by politics and mythologies and self-help, unlike those, the one who rose from the dead will raise you up also on the day he returns. So, take heart. Your future in Christ is secure. Okay, so now back on to the citizenship piece. How do we live as citizens of God's realm, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in our current state of affairs? Well, one way that doesn't work is to live as colonizers of the kingdom of heaven. See, colonizers, that mentality, colonizers come into spaces where indigenous people live. That doesn't only mean like First Nations, but whoever's there before the colonizers get there. And they try and live in such a way where they try and change that indigenous people's laws and customs to fit the motherland, to make it look just like the motherland. And oftentimes it's with decent intentions But intentions don't really matter if you make a mess of things. And Roman colonizers moved into Philippi, for example, and brought their religion and their taxes and their custom and their language, and they tried to make Philippi another little Rome. And colonizing Christians, unfortunately, have done this in their worst worst parts of history have have done this throughout history. Um, At their worst, they've sought to understand other people's language and culture only so far as it allows them to communicate the gospel and to critique other cultures. But colonizing cities and towns as citizens of heaven is not what Paul and not what the early church models. So earlier in our scripture reading uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Um, in that passage, we heard this line um, that, well, we didn't hear this line. 
we saw that God doesn't colonize, and we heard this. He reconciled up us to himself through Christ, and then he gave us the ministry or the task of being reconcilers to other people. Just let me, let me pause and see if you caught this. That God has called us who, who follow Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're just like, I, I, don't put me in that camp. I'm, I'm sure you just want to hear what we think as Christians, right? So like, if you are following Jesus, what, what we're supposed to be doing is we're called to be in the business or the vocation of reconciliation, not occupation. Of bringing good news not assimilating people to our particular cultural bent or our particular cultural perspective. In fact, we're called to be ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of Jesus. You know where ambassadors live, don't you? They live in other lands from their own. They live in foreign lands. They live um, to reconcile nations through generosity and diplomacy and finding common ground and hospitality, offering hospitality. Ambassadors offer what they think their culture has to offer. And most ambassadors think like, hey, my culture has something good to offer your culture, but I'm not gonna shove it down your throat. I'm gonna invite you into my embassy and treat you to a good meal that we like back home and show you some of the best parts of our, of our culture and share it with you. Colonizers are uncompromising, heavy-handed, judgmental, they typically see things as black and white, as right and wrong, as my way or wrong. Whereas ambassadors recognize that, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm in a foreign land. Um, I'm probably the minority here. They recognize that while they have something great to offer, an offer becomes a great insult if it's unsolicited, right? So, so I, I, as ambassadors of Christ, we have something great to offer but our offer becomes pretty insulting if it's unsolicited, right? So here's an example from the Bible. Daniel and his Israelite friends, they're taken captive from Israel, brought over to Babylon, which had just conquered their whole country, and they're forced to work in Babylon, but they become great examples of ambassadors to Babylon because they recognize like, hey, we're in a foreign land here, and they found ways not only to remain faithful to God, but also to bless the Babylonians and to wherever they could without compromising their faith, they were a blessing to their captors. Here, another example from scripture is that when Paul traveled to foreign lands, he was always an ambassador to those places, not a colonizer. So in Athens, for example, he meets people on their own terms, where they're at. Um, he quotes their own poets, and he, and he um, starts with their own religious practices rather than saying, like, your religion sucks, let me tell you about mine. He says, like, oh, there's, look at this. Uh, let's talk about this idol to the unknown God and like maybe I see, I see some common ground with where I'm coming from. Ambassadors find their identity in their king, in their home, not in their success with how many minds they change or converts they make. So your identity is really rooted in the love of God for you. That Your identity is that you are the beloved of God. 
Your destiny is secure in Christ. Your future is resurrection if you've placed your trust in Jesus. And that makes you free not to have to change other people. I don't know what all your backgrounds are, but like that's an extremely freeing sentence. That when you accept your beloved of Christness and that you have something awesome to offer, but your future is not, not dictated by your success of changing other people's minds or, or making them like you, that's extremely freeing. Instead, you can live in a way that blesses other people and invites them to know the hope that you have, the joy that you have, and the Jesus who loves you and every person that you'll ever meet. He loves them already. So that's the core of the chiasm, the meat of the sandwich is that your citizenship is in heaven, that your identity is secure in Christ, that you're called to be an ambassador and not a colonizer. Now, Stella, can we put that slide back up again just that shows the chiasm? So we just did the meat part, and now we're gonna get to the pieces of bread, if you will. So we're gonna go to that first piece of bread on the top, verses 15 through 19, where we hear Paul's appeal for us to walk in a way that reflects our true home. So remember, we're ambassadors, we're citizens of the kingdom, and now he's encouraging us to like, hey, your roots are in heaven or in Christ. No matter where you live, like, Live that way, live it out, right in your context in Bellingham or in Ferndale or Seattle or wherever it is, like live it out. Um, And even though he himself hadn't arrived at perfection, Paul invites people to imitate his way of living. Now notice that Paul doesn't invite people to imitate his every word or every behavior. Paul is well aware that he's still a work in progress, but he invites people to imitate his way to imitate his orientation toward following Jesus. Like he doesn't get it all right, but in general, you could look at Paul's life and say like pretty much everything he does, even when he puts his foot in his mouth, like it's pretty much to try and glorify Jesus and to be a blessing to other people. Like that's the trajectory he's on. Paul got plenty wrong according to his own account, but in general, his whole life His energy and his focus was on living out the gospel in such a way that others might know Jesus' love for them and come to faith. And so Paul then warns us about two general groups of people that he calls enemies of the cross. And we can only guess, like we don't know who exactly like these people were, but we all know these people. Um, We've all been these people. Some of us are all these people. Um, Here's what I mean. The cross represents, in general, the grace of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. You you have to hold those things in tension. It's not just grace, and it's not just suffering. There's grace through his suffering for us. And on the one hand, there are those enemies of the cross who want to add to the grace of Jesus by demanding that followers of Jesus follow arbitrary rules that certain sects and group of people deem essential to the faith. So in Paul's day, there is um, certain Jewish laws and customs like circumcision and kosher food that Jesus seems to do away with, and there's groups of people that were saying, no, 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 you need to do that if you're gonna be a real Christian. 
Um, another example would be a few centuries later, uh, there is a form of Christianity called Pelagianism, and the idea is that Jesus does all he's going to do. He meets you halfway, but if you want salvation, you have to meet him at 50%, which means you have to work hard, and um, you have to earn your part of salvation. Um, I don't know. That's, that's deemed a heresy, by the way. So if you think that way, like, hey, take a load off. It's the grace of God that rescues you. So um, in our own day, it might be Christians, you know, there's all kinds of crazy rules out there. Um, real Christians, I'll just use the, the, the basic low-hanging fruit ones, like real Christians don't drink, or real Christians don't gamble, or real Christians don't listen to certain music, or watch certain movies, or vote a certain way, right? Um, and there's definitely wisdom in avoiding certain content, but anytime, anytime we create a human-made law and apply it to every single person without any kind of nuance, man, we are in danger if we make that a litmus test for whether or not you're a real Christian. And we're in danger of becoming an enemy of the cross of grace. So that's That's one sort of enemy of the cross. On the other hand are those people who love the grace of the cross, but seem to ignore that the the very fact that the God we claim to worship hung on that cross, that he emptied himself of his own rights in order to rescue other people. And Paul refers to these people as those who have their bellies as their gods, meaning that their true master is their impulse for comfort and ease and pleasure. And again, let me just be clear, like there is nothing wrong with experiencing joy. Paul talks about joy in the book of Philippians like lots of times, like he's always saying rejoice and be full of joy. So that's not what he's on about. But what he is saying is that any form of Christianity that avoids sacrifice or avoids self-discipline, any form of Christianity that makes our lust and our greed and our gluttony like our king, that's in contradiction to the cross. Um, So he's talking about these two extremes that he calls enemies of the cross. Um, And in light of the center of the chiasm, the part about us being citizens of heaven, we don't make very good ambassadors of Christ if we aren't like living out the way of Christ. Again, we're not expected to be perfect. Faith is a process. But in general, we have to ask, are we orienting our lives in such a way that we are at least, like, would be recognized as walking toward the way of Jesus? I think Paul would agree with this statement, because I pretty much discerned it from this passage, um, that one way not to follow Jesus well is to follow Jesus by yourself. That's one almost sure way to fail. Um, As citizens of heaven, We are surrounded by lots of great people, but we won't be encouraged to live sacrificially or in the grace of Christ just by our culture. And I'm not bashing our culture. Any culture, pretty much, is not going to get you there by itself. Um, So Paul invites us to imitate him, or he invites the Philippians to imitate him, but he opens another door too, because in that passage, he invites us to imitate others who imitate him. And since, let me just say the obvious, since there are zero people in the world who follow Jesus perfectly, I suggest 
that we look to lots of different people in our lives to emulate. Because while no one person you know can be everything, like no one is the perfect example of Christ, I bet you if you went around this room, you could find great, like there are great qualities in Jeannie that you, I'm not trying to, I just thought of this, but you inspire me with your passionate love of Jesus. Now I'm sure there's things in your life that you would say, don't emulate that, Chris, and I would agree with you. Uh, but you know, but, you know and, and every one of you that I know even somewhat, I, I could see some ways that you encourage me to follow Christ. But I'm not gonna, it wouldn't even be fair to you to try and load up on you like, you're my everything. Brian Kennedy, everything you do, I'm gonna do, and if you mess up, then that's on you. That's, that's not fair. Um, I, I start with scripture for my inspiration, the life of Jesus, Paul's a pretty good one, uh, all the disciples, so that, that's a good starting point, but I also, I need more than that. I, I, I don't know if you feel like it's okay to say that, so let me say it for you. You probably need more than that. Like, you need real people that emulate those lives, and so, like, I like biographies. I just finished Eugene Peterson's uh, Burning in My Bones, and I, I love Eugene Peterson. I love his, his whole life trajectory is toward Christ, but I also like the fact that he's not perfect, and the books talk about, his book talks about that, and that humanizes him, and it humanizes me and gives me permission not to be perfect. Um, I'm inspired by my wife, Corey, for her gentleness and her wisdom and her patience, and if you know her, you know those things are true. I'm inspired by certain pastors and friends and neighbors. I'm inspired by our staff I get to work with and by our leadership team, and like I said, many of you, and so what I would suggest to you is to take a look around the people in your lives and just ask yourself like who is at least in general consistently like making an effort to grow in Christ? Who is, you know, in general like on that trajectory? And spend time with them and hang out with them and be inspired by them. These are the people who are going to inspire you to keep going. So the center is that reality that the kingdom of heaven is coming, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also at work to raise us from the dead. And because of that, we're invited to be ambassadors and citizens of the kingdom of God right where we live, right where we work, right where we go to school. That's the meat. And the first piece of bread is the concept, the conceptual level of living it out, of being aware of the enemies of the cross, of grace and sacrifice that are all around us. And you know where they're always alive is right here too, because all of us have our little judgmentalism and all of us have our little like love our pleasure, <laughs> love our comfort. And I've made both of those things gods in my life. Okay. So that's that first piece of bread. And then in Chapter four, verses one through three is the second piece of bread in our chiastic sandwich. Does not sound appetizing, but anyway. So we have an example of real life application of living out our citizenship in heaven in this passage. And we're introduced to these two women named uh, Yodia and Syntyche. And there's been a lot like, oh, you can read a lot about what people think their argument was about, but I'll just save you the trouble. The Bible doesn't say. <laughs> So we should probably not put a lot of weight on speculating what their argument was about. But here's what we do know. Paul refers to both of these women as those, I'm quoting here, as those who have shared his struggle in the gospel. And he says, they are my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's an old school way of saying they're part of Christ's thing. They're like, 
in the gang of, of following Jesus. And so while we don't know what they're at odds about for sure, we do know that Paul viewed them uh, as colleagues in his work, uh, in the work of the gospel, and we see the importance to Paul that these two sisters in Christ reconcile with one another. That's the practical application. It's so important um, is this concept that Paul calls on the Philippian church the community to step in and help out. Like it's so important to him that he's writing this letter, basically, did you catch that? He's writing to a whole church. Like imagine if, I don't know, the Pope wrote, I don't know, somebody important in the church wrote a letter to Letters of Covenant Church and then he names like, hey, and Jeannie and Abby, <laughs> sorry, I'm not that you have anything going on. Jeannie and Abby, they need to clear up that thing and you guys need to help them walk through it. Like it's just, that's kind of how weird it is and also how important it is to Paul that he calls people out by name. He blesses them both. He gives them both equal time in the passage. So he's not saying, well, I know Jeannie's right, so make Abby see the error of her ways. And he's not doing it the other way around. He calls them colleagues, basically, in the ministry. So um, just remember, women have full place in ministry that Paul's like saying, these are my partners in the gospel. Okay, so... Um, it's that important to him. And, and, and the reality is that if we're going to be ambassadors who seek reconciliation, we need to live it out in our own relationships, in our own churches, in our own communities. It's not just a concept or a sermon or something you read in a book. It's something to be lived out in the flesh. A Christian theology and study of scripture and critical thinking are all vital. It's how you, you know, how you get to chiasms and chiastic sandwiches, and it's how you interpret scripture well, right? But that's not, that we cannot stop there. Interpreting scripture well is always at the employ of living it well. That's what Paul really cares about. That's what we ought to really care about. And the way that we live out scripture and following Jesus is on the ground. That's the only way you can do it, is like, in your body, and in your real relationships that you have. Christian reconciliation will require sacrifice. Remember chapter two of this very letter where Paul tells us not to merely look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of other people, to consider others as more important than ourselves. And I, I just always want to throw the caveat out because I know there's a lot of abuse that people have suffered. That is never a license for being a doormat or taking like real abuse. And if you need a reminder of that, go back to that sermon. I think I fleshed that up pretty well there. But, um, but if you're on equal ground with someone and the power level is the same, it is a call of God to say like, hey, I'm gonna defer to someone else here. I am going to consider someone as more important than myself. That is utterly countercultural. So consider your relationships. Is there a brother or sister in Christ that you just need to clear the air with? Would it help? Paul thinks it'd be helpful to have a mediator present, some neutral party who's mature in Christ, who's like, takes a little bit of the heat off. Like, it can be hard to just confront. But like, maybe you wanna call in someone who can, uh, can help mediate that. Are your relationships in home at order? Um, or with your friends. Remember that God himself took the role of reconciliator, 
to reconcile relationships. He took it so seriously, the need to reconcile relationships, that he emptied himself and became a human being to be with us and to reconcile us to himself. So let us live our citizenship in heaven out on earth right now. Lord, thank you for this extremely um, high calling that is not, is not just good advice or a to-do list, but it is rooted in the meat of the chiastic sandwich, which is good news. It's a declaration that you've rescued us, that you are coming, that our future is secure, that our salvation is not dependent on how well we do all of these things, but rather based on that foundation, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us to take risks, to be willing to sacrifice, to be willing to swallow our pride, uh, to work the ministry of reconciliation, both in our, our own relationships in our homes and our local church, but also um, to think as a reconciler to the world. Amen.